from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer and director who is fearless in vision and evocative in storytelling. She produces stunning visuals while weaving a narrative that's both hauntingly surreal and deeply human. She's joining me today to discuss her new film, Perpetrator. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Jennifer Reeder. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 27th day of September 2023. I came across your film Perpetrator one night while I was browsing through Shudder and was immediately drawn in by the trailer. So decided to check it out and the movie was surreal and stylized. And at first... I thought due to its abstract nature that the film was going to be purely visual and emotional. However, by the end, I realized how narrative-driven it really was when all the disparate elements fell into place. So I was really impressed with the film, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. Thanks. And I'm glad you found it and watched it and appreciated it. Absolutely. Well, so the film is about a young woman named Johnny who lives with her single father. Due to his ailing health, Johnny resorts to some unsavory means to keep a roof over both of their heads. And as his health worsens, he decides to send Johnny to stay with her estranged Aunt Hildy until he can recover. Under the tutelage of her Aunt Hildy, Johnny discovers that she has an otherworldly, powerful sense of empathy, which is both a strength and sometimes a weakness. And she in turn attempts to weaponize this ability to stop a serial killer that is preying on young women. So were there any challenges in portraying a power that's based on an emotional connection rather than a physical or supernatural force? Yeah, I would say what was interesting working with Kaya McKiernan, who plays Johnny, she obviously had read the script and really felt connected to that character and understood her ability, her turbocharged empathy as her kind of superpower. She understood that in the script. And then when it came to, you know, shooting some of the scenes where in the script it would say, you know, Johnny's face morphs into another face or her voice becomes another voice or she's pulled into the ground by her own blood or something like that. I realized that that can be, Kai and I both realized that that can be a hard acting challenge. Mm -hmm. 
when you're not being attacked, when it's something that's much more internal than external. And so, you know, there were these moments when she would just say, no, wait, what's happening <laughs> to my face? <laughs> and am I scared? Or what is this going to look like? Or, and, you know, all of the face morphing obviously happened in post. So she didn't have something to, to react against. Mm-hmm. And there is a scene the night of her transformation when the sort of ground kind of pulls her in. And that took a moment for her to figure out what that would look like. You know, she was like, well, okay, hold on. Is there somebody in the blood that's pulling me down? And I was like, no, no, it's the blood itself. And and the same thing would happen sometimes with working with Alicia Silverstone, who plays Hildy, where she was like, no, why am I poking my finger into the cake? Or like, <laughs> why am I poking my finger into the ground or whatever? And thankfully, both of them trusted sort of my vision of this world, my version of this world. And, you know, sometimes I would simply just have to do the gesture that I had in my head for them. And then they would do it until it clicked like, oh, oh, okay, I got it. I think I got it. Let me try this again. So the challenge of of having somebody react to something that is really internal was an acting challenge. But I, I don't know, I feel like between their acting and my directing, we figured it out. Eventually. Well, in those particular instances, did you feel like under normal circumstances when you would direct somebody, you'd kind of give them this generalized feel for what they're supposed to do? But in those particular instances where they don't know what's happening because it's done in post-production, did you feel like you kind of had to micromanage their reaction or acting the scene out? Oh, for sure. And that was also partially because, you know, it had to be consistent because of the VFX, you know, that can take a long time to match a face to another face. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to put a couple of different takes together that are really different from different angles, it's just nearly impossible. So it was not just about figuring out how to act through something that on the one hand, the actor themselves isn't quite sure what is, but also the character, you know, Johnny is experiencing something that she's never experienced before. So, you know, there's that sense to it as well. And at the same time, the actor has very little room to just kind of play around with the various takes because we have to make sure that it's consistent for the VFX. So some of those scenes were really challenging and frustrating. And that was a surprise to me because I thought there were other scenes that were going to be harder and harder acting challenge. And some of those scenes were like easy peasy, like some of the fight sequences, you know, you just choreograph it and then you rehearse it and then you do it. Mm -hmm. And those scenes seemed seamless. And then it was the more nuanced scenes of kind of coming into one's power that were like really draining on me and the actors. Was there one in particular you remember where you were just like, oh, how am I going to pull this off? Because this is so abstract and surreal. I don't know how I'm going to communicate it. I think that like the one that I mentioned where it's like the night of Johnny's transformation and Mm. she, you know, she sort of spits out some blood and the blood kind of gurgles up out of the ground and then she puts her hand in it and it kind of yanks her in a little bit and then she has to kind of Mm. yank it back out. It seems like such a simple moment and it doesn't take up much screen time, but Kaya was really like, I don't, wait, why is my blood pulling me in? (laughs) Am I afraid? All great questions. And all, you know, I had the answers to all of that, but that was a 
tough sort of moment. Or even when I was like, I want you to pull your hand out and like, look at your hand. And the first time that she did it, she looked like she was really terrified. And then I was like, no, no, you're fascinated. You know, like you're actually, I want you to be more fascinated with what's just happened to you and, or more curious. And then she was like, oh, okay. So, Mm. and we shot that during pickups. So we had actually already shot all the principal photography in March of 2022. And then when we shot that scene in particular, it was in August. Mm. (laughs) So it was like, (laughs) you know, she had not thought about Johnny in a long, long time. So I think that there was also that sense of kind of getting back into her skin, you know, which was a challenge. But I, I thought that would be more fun. I was like, let's just like play around with all this theatrical (laughs) blood in my backyard. And it was, but that was a moment where I had to stop and say, okay, remember who you are, you know, remember, you know, what has been happening to you. I mean, I think probably one of the hardest scenes to shoot for the actors, though, physically was the underwater fight between Johnny and the perpetrator, um, Mm. because that was all totally practical. I mean, that really was Kaya and Chris, the actual actors. Those weren't stunt doubles. We didn't really have a stunt coordinator who choreographed an underwater fight that really was in like 14 feet of water. I mean, wow, you know, that was tough and they were such troopers. And I feel so proud of that scene because it's, Mm. I think, just a really spectacular moment in the film, if I can say that about something that I made. Yeah. No, I would have assumed totally that was post-production. You know, I mean, it looked realistic, but I would assume that the actors, no, no, the actors wouldn't be in there. (laughs) 14 feet of water. Mm -hmm. Nope. That was both of them. And like I said, that was all practical. You know, that was Mm. totally practical. I mean, everyone leading up to that was like, how are you going to shoot that blood well? How are you going to shoot that blood well? And I was like, I have this idea. And I feel like my MFA kicked in, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. like at the end of the day, the behind the scenes photographs of that day look so janky. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like, you're just like, there's no way that this is going to work. And it worked. Mm. Well, when she finally saw the finished product, did she feel like she matched up her actions with the uh, post-produced effects? Yeah. 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 She, then she then totally. Yeah. Then she was like, wow, that's so freaky. You know what I mean? I think there's some really great moments of her face becoming other faces, you know, that really work. And of course, like by the time the film ends, we're just at the very beginning of her journey, which is how I meant it to be. But I think that when Kaya finally saw it was when she was like, oh, that's Mm. what I was doing, you know? (laughs) Nice. But I think as a director, there's also new challenges, you know, when you make a new film where you have to figure out how to communicate, you know, something to an actor that you've not even had to communicate to an actor before, you know, where Mm. I was just like, yeah, I guess I haven't sort of talked somebody through some invisible superpowers. So let me figure out how to best communicate that to her. And each actor... You know, some actors really like to understand what the emotional motivation is. Some just really want like physical direction. Others need a whole backstory. You know, some people just don't, you know, they kind of just want to show up and figure it out. Others want really abstract sort of metaphorical kind of directions. So it's like herding cats sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out like how each actor likes to take direction and how to communicate with each actor. I mean, having said that, these actors are fantastic and there was nobody, you know, who I wasn't able to finally figure out how to communicate with. Uh, Interesting. Well, in the process of writing and directing, were there iterations of Johnny's abilities that evolved or changed significantly? Well, at the very beginning, when I knew that I wanted to make a shapeshifter story, 
at the very beginning, I was like, I knew that I wanted to make a shapeshifter story, but I also knew that I didn't want her to be a vampire or a, a werewolf. <laughs> so, I mean, like I kind of set myself up for either the most interesting or the least interesting shapeshifter story on the planet, you know, because <laughs> sort of the whole point is that they mostly become werewolves or vampires or something physical, which eventually Johnny does. But, you know, I mean, if you've seen other films of mine, which I know that you have, I want to write unexpected stories. I mean, I, I set out to write unexpected stories. There's plenty of stories in real life and in cinema that are very expected, and that's fine. I like some of those stories, too, as a consumer. But as someone making content, I want to write unexpected stories. And so, you know, setting out to make a shapeshifter story where her powers are based in her emotions... I got there first, you know, I was like, okay, what if she has like super empathy, you know, that could be really interesting. And I know that there are people who consider themselves like empaths in a way that is related to telepathy and clairvoyance and psychic abilities. It's a pseudoscience, but you know, there are people who really do believe that they can sort of absorb someone else's feelings. And then I still couldn't figure out what would happen to her physically. You know, I was like, well, what's that going to look like? That's actually not going to be very interesting if we just imagine her supercharged emotions. And I kind of just like did that mind game that I do sometimes as a writer where I just took that to like its most extreme mm -hmm. place, right? And thought like, if you really could absorb someone else's energy and if that was your superpower, could you really like start to look like them, you know, what would that be like? And, you know, I mean, that was like a kind of light bulb went off. And that was after, honestly, I had sort of like written the whole script up to her transformation and then even kind of written the end where she confronts the perpetrator. But the whole middle part where she actually gains her superpower, her shape-shifting, I had no idea what any of that stuff was. So like the biggest part of the story was a big hole for a long time until I figured out where her power was internally and what it would do to her externally. Yeah. Yeah. The ultimate empathy, putting yourself in somebody's place until mm -hmm. you're actually that person. <laughs> yeah. And look, I think, you know, I mean, I like to write stories that also have like a kind of larger implications. And, you know, I mean, I was writing the story. I started writing Perpetrator in 2019 and then you know, obviously I didn't shoot it in 2020. We were all dealing with a global pandemic and, mm -hmm. you know, a presidential campaign, which we are again, uh, still. <laughs> and, you know, I really, the idea of super empathy came to me, not as a screenwriter, but as a human being, you know, and just feeling kind of like, wow, the idea, if we really could just think of someone else for a moment and, you know, try to put ourselves into someone else's shoes and any of these things. Wonder, wonder why people, you know, eventually get hooked on drugs. Wonder why women get abortions. You know, wonder how people abandon their families, how people become homeless, like any of these, mm. you know, anything that just feels like there's other people in the world who are like, well, that's their fault. They're selfish or they're weak or they're whatever and not really understand how systems work, mm. you know, to the advantage of some and to the disadvantage of, of others. And just for a moment, have empathy, you know, mm. that the world could be so much better for everybody. But I'm not a documentary filmmaker. I still mm. want to make sort of entertaining genre films. 
But I thought like, actually, I think I can make an entertaining genre film that still speaks to the power of empathy. Mm. Yeah, I'm not much of a religious person, but uh, makes me think about, but for the grace of God go I, that often repeated, I think it's a verse, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not a religious person. I feel like I'm a recovering Catholic. I was raised Catholic. And <laughs> at some point, like... I'm a recovering Protestant. Kind of, yeah, like I was just kind of like, I feel like I'm more aligned with the witches, mom. Like, I don't know how to tell you that, you know? Um, but I do think empathy for me, or at least sympathy, you know, like trying to imagine the world as a better place or trying to sort of, you know, at the end of the day, think about other people is a sort of secular religious like approach, you mm-hmm. know, to that sentiment that you, yeah. you know, that you suggested for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, kind of piggybacking off of the talk of empathy in mm-hmm. various scenes in the movie, we observe Johnny and her aunt Hildy seemingly savoring blood. And there's mm-hmm. a, a distinct moment where Johnny's teeth take on a jagged kind of predatory appearance. So, mm-hmm. I was wondering, how do these behaviors relate to or reflect their empathic abilities in the narrative? I'll start with her teeth. I know that on some level, the teeth feel like a kind of non sequitur, you know, like, Mm. who do the teeth belong to, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, How are the teeth related to empathy? Uh But I also just wanted to make a kind of monster, you know, I wanted to kind of build like a tiny bit of a creature. Like I said, I didn't want her to be a werewolf or a, a vampire, but I thought, oh God, it'd be really fun if she just has like weird teeth, you know, like <laughs> that's kind of her thing. And of course, like, you know, working with the um, effects house here in Chicago who made her teeth, who did all the effects for Candyman and oh. Lovecraft Country and they were shot here in Chicago, but he happens to be this like really Anthony Kozar, amazing effects guy. And we designed her teeth so they weren't vampire teeth or animal teeth. They kind of have little, they're almost like little shark teeth. They have like little baby teeth that are up in her gums. I mean, they're very mm. weird and particular. Kind of in a way that you imagine like she could just keep kind of growing more teeth, which mm. also feels a little bit like immortality that maybe Hildy's kind of immortal. It's called forevering. I mean, there's, mm, yeah. it's related, you know. But I really wanted to sneak in some monster teeth. And so that's where her teeth came from. And the blood... When I was touring around with a film that I made in 2019, Knives and Skin, I was getting asked a lot about what was thought of as a trend of women, you know, working more in genre. And what did I think that was about, you know, and why were there more women, you know, writing, you know, scary movies or directing scary movies? And, you know, my answers would be the same. You know, I would say, well, you know, the world's most favorite monster, which is, you know, Frankenstein's creature was invented by a teenage girl. Mary Shelley was 19 when that story was published. And then I would say something that, you know, can make a lot of people uncomfortable. I would just say, well, people with uteruses from a very young age have a pretty consistent relationship with blood. And girls are taught from a young age to be afraid, to be prey. You know, where I was taught as a young person, don't walk home alone at night, you know, like cross to the other side of the street if there's, you know, an adult man walking towards you. I mean, you know, we could also say that like, at some point, men are told that they're predators as well. You know, Mm. it's very problematic. You know, the way that we sort of groom young kids to either be the one feared or the one who's going to be afraid. And so I knew that I wanted to make blood powerful, 
you know, but not related to death necessarily, you know, because I think it's a George Carlin, the, the comedian George Carlin was the one actually who said the joke, you know, what can bleed for days and not die. And, you know, the, the joke is it's a woman, you know? And I mean, I appreciate that joke. That's not one where I'm kind of like, what? I mean, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of true. You know, like we can have a relationship with blood and it doesn't mean we've been injured or we're dying. You know, mm. it's actually really normal and natural. And yet there are probably many, many, many people who have never themselves experienced, let's say, menstrual blood, who their only experience is through commercials. And if anybody listening to this learns anything today, it's that menstrual blood is not like pale blue, thin, and comes out like in teaspoons. I mean, like <laughs> the commercials for yeah. like, you know, products or whatever. <laughs> so I was like, I really wanted the blood to be the symbol of just the kind of magic that exists within their bodies and that it's not a sign of a wound or of death, but that it's natural and that it's powerful. You know, I mean, prior to us starting this conversation, I had to take a call from one of my kids. I mean, I'm a mom. I have three children. You know, I went through natural childbirth three times. I've had a miscarriage. Also, I think childbirth or like women's sort of experiences with their bodies can be pretty gnarly, pretty genre. <laughs> and it's all still really natural. And I think it's also still something that's not talked about, you know, that's just like, let's not talk about that part. And yet, in so many films, women can get sexually assaulted, bludgeoned, decapitated, you know, but they can't menstruate. <laughs> <laughs> Vince, I didn't know if you were ready to go to all this. Oh, this oh, let's do it. Me, but we're going <laughs> to yeah. do it, right? We're yeah, doing let's, it. Let's dive into the 14 feet of blood. <laughs> <laughs> well, so another thing that's kind of put side by side with that is appearance, or I guess the obsession with appearance. There's a real mm -hmm. interesting character named Marcy, mm -hmm. who was notably unusual. Mm -hmm. She's kind of appearing as a caricature of someone so obsessed with their appearance that she's perpetually healing. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is, of course, from her undergoing new plastic surgeries before recovering completely from the previous ones. Mm -hmm. So was her character intended as a form of parody or satire? And if so, what message were you trying to convey? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you've seen any of my films, and I'm not saying that to you because you have, but there's a lot of like hyperbole. People are like overly kind of stylized, overly realized. Mm. So, and my films really do like hover just above reality. Certainly there are people who have had way too many plastic surgeries or way too many, you know, corrective cosmetic surgeries. But the Marcy character, it's like to that satirical end point. <laughs> and I would say that that actor, Audrey Francis, mm -hmm. is one of the co-creative directors of the Steppenwolf Theater here in Chicago, which was founded by John Malkovich and Gary Sinise. I mean, mm. in her real life, Audrey Francis is this like incredibly well-respected dramatic actor. And I put her in multiple films of mine as someone kind of ridiculous, um, <laughs> which she's always like, I'll do whatever you want. I was like, we're going to wrap your face in a lot of bandages and it's going to get progressively worse. And she was like, I'll do anything <laughs> for you. And it was a little bit of an ode to one of my favorite films, Brazil from Terry Gilliam. You know, that's a crazy, fantastical film. And she also goes through multiple 
iterations of plastic surgery and at some point it says like, you know, my complications have had complications, you know, and it's just, <laughs> but I think that we are a culture obsessed with youth and beauty and yet the healing process, like we never see the desired results of her facial surgeries, right? We only see her just continually wrapped up. And mm. that always blows my mind. Like somebody who's getting a full facelift. I mean, you spend six weeks, eight weeks, I don't know, looking crazy, mm. you know, until maybe you actually still look crazy because you don't look like yourself anymore. I mean, we've seen so much of that go bad with celebrities. And yet I think that actors, for instance, like, you know, Frances McDormand, who's just an incredible actor and a gorgeous woman is called brave because she's just actually an aging woman. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's uh -huh. not brave. That's what a woman in her, you know, late fifties looks like. So yeah, that character is meant to be, you know, the personification of this kind of obsession with staying young and, and you, actually make yourself a monster, you know, in the meanwhile, which is that kind of parallel to sort of Johnny's monster, mm -hmm. you know, that there's another monster, which is the kind of person who's taking the girls. And then there's these other monsters, which are just this, you know, somebody who just has this kind of like wound that won't heal. And again, in so many of my other films, there's usually somebody who has some little nick on their ear or something on their finger, like a little subtle wound that just won't heal. You know, I mean, in, in real life, like a cut or more than a cut, you know, mm. starts to heal after a little while. But I like to have characters who are sustaining these kind of wounds that are actually just get worse, you know, that mm. get worse <laughs> over the course of the film. Mm. And that's, you know, partially because I just think that we as human beings, and this kind of goes back to the power of empathy in a kind of reverse way. But I think that you know, we as human beings ask each other very rhetorical questions on a daily basis, like, how are you doing? And our instinct is to be like, good, great. Mm. And if you came across somebody like Marcy, you know, in the grocery store, and she was like, hey, Vince, and you're like, hey, hey, Marcy, how you doing? You know, with her <laughs> face all bandaged up. And she's like, I'm great. And you might be like, you are, you are <laughs> not great, you know? And so, so many of my films are really about like exposing the internal, exposing what is really happening in someone's heart and head mm -hmm. and letting all of that messiness kind of ooze out. And one way to sort of physically show that is through a character like Marcy, you know, who's just got these wounds that are getting worse and worse and worse. And like her complications have complications and her surgeries have had more surgeries. Yeah, I kind of understand the correlation now after having asked the question. So mm -hmm. I'm assuming there's a correlation with the serial killer because he seemed to mm -hmm. feed off the vibrant youth of young women. And I don't want to mm -hmm. get specific because I don't want to give a spoiler. So I can totally see the same thing driving Marcy, driving the perpetrator. Yeah. But in addition to that, were there any inspirations from folklore, myth, or other narratives that influenced this uh, particular trait of the serial killer? I mean, I think that, and I'm so glad you brought that up, because that was a huge part of thinking through this obsession with youth and beauty. Because it's not just about how somebody looks. It's also about attention and sort of adoration from young people 
my own children. I have two teenagers and a younger kid. And I'm speaking to you now from my office at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where I'm a professor. You know, mm-hmm. I taught two classes today to a lot of amazing young college students. And the idea of being like valid, interesting in the eyes of young people, it's like if you are someone who wants to look young because you want to hold on to your youth, you know, mm-hmm. it's not just that. It's like what can feel so exhilarating about being young is like being around other young people. And I mean, having said that, I also appreciate so much not being a teenager anymore. You know, I'm very happy with, I'm very happy with where I am right now. I'm very happy to walk past a group of teenagers and be completely invisible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was picking up one of my kids from school yesterday in like my workout clothes And I just looked crazy. I had on like these big black kind of garbage baggy sauna pants. I mean, it wasn't just like leggings and a sweatshirt. I looked Mm. nuts. (laughs) And I was like, what the F do I care? Like they, they don't see me, you know, Mm. like all of these 12 year olds and 11 year olds and 10 year olds are clustered together talking to each other. The whole rest of the world does not exist. You know, for my 16-year-old, it's the same thing. Like, he's talking to his other 16-year-old friends. Like, the whole rest of the world doesn't exist. I'm his mom, but I exist completely outside of their world. And thank God, I do, which allows me to also kind of move through their world looking crazy, and I don't have to feel self-conscious about it. Like, I'm not part of their world. But there are a lot of people who really want to be part of that world, who are just kind of like, I want the attention and the energy of those young people again. And I think we see it mostly in not necessarily like aging actors, but like aging musicians, you know, I mean, God bless Madonna, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm a Madonna fan from a long time ago, but I feel like she's still holding on to this idea that like the average 15 year old is like eager for her next album. (laughs) And I just think that they're, they're not, you know, like it's, she's invisible to them. And her kind of holding on to some of that, even through social media, sometimes just feels like, oh, you know, I mean, I don't want her to, you know, blow away in the wind. She's still got lots to contribute, but lots to contribute on her own terms as she is who she is right now. Hmm. And so I wanted for our main villain, the serial killer, to also want validation. I wanted him to feel like he needed attention and validation from young people. And that's something that from my direct experience, like young people, it's like that you just at some point you become invisible to them mm-hmm. as it should be, you know? And I think as I get older, what I realize is like, oh, right, the next generation up for me, I don't want them to become invisible either. Like I actually have to look at people who are older than me and know that they were teenagers once and they were in their 20s and 30s and 40s, et cetera, you know, mm-hmm. once and that I can't let them be invisible either and understand that they have wisdom and they have a life and they have a memory of being a young person as well. And that, you know, aging can feel cruel, but it's factual. You can't stop it. There's no such thing as (laughs) anti-aging. Definitely. Yes. Well, Alicia Silverstone gave a passionate, amazing performance. And I would have to say one of my favorite scenes is when she first explains what's happening to Johnny Uh and when she's kind of leaned up against the wall and talks about forevering. And 
Given the unique characteristics of Aunt Hildy, what drew you to cast Alicia Silverstone in this role? And how do you feel she elevated the character? So I, I had actually wanted to work with Alicia for a while. I mean, because I, I think that she's a very interesting actor. And um, I have made a lot of films about young people. And I had thought about her even for Knives and Skin because I wanted to cast somebody as one of the adult moms who we had been introduced to as a teenager in an iconic, you know, teenage film. That kind of meta-ness, you know, of her own story, of her own provenance felt like really productive and useful. So her name had come up, and not just from me, because I was like, I would love to work with her. Shudder really liked the idea of, of casting her also. And I had seen her in a small but memorable part in um, Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is a great film, and also in The Lodge, which is a great genre film that she's in at the very beginning. And so I knew that she was willing to kind of make some weird moves, and she was working sort of in the genre world. She's got a film that just came out called Reptile, Mm. which also just looks fantastic (laughs) with Justin Timberlake and Benicio Del Toro, also kind of a weird genre film. And so we sent her reps the script, and they loved the script for her. They actually said that it was a lot like a Yorgos Lanthimos film, which felt like a big compliment to me. And I wrote her a letter, which I often do when I want to work directly with an actor. And I had said to her how meaningful I thought it would be for her to play the matriarch of a shape-shifting family of women who was the mentor to hopefully like an iconic teenager, as in Johnny, when we as a culture of film lovers had been introduced to her as an iconic teenager. And of course I'm talking about Cher Horowitz and Clueless. Mm -hmm. And then I went on to say that I really wanted to pattern her version of Hildy after the Catherine Deneuve character in the 1983 film, The Hunger, which is a great kind of shapeshifter immortal story with Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie directed by Tony Scott. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was very specific about why I wanted her in particular how I saw her in the film. And she loved that take. And she's so smart. I mean, as much as she still in her real life sounds like Cher Horowitz, like she has this kind of lilting (laughs) kind of valley girl way of talking and this, you know, tousled blonde Southern California hair, you know, Uh but she's still a woman. She's, you know, 47. She has a kid. I mean, she's a mom. She's an activist. She's a smart, interesting, funny, funny person. And she just got it. And she would call me when we were prepping for the film. She liked to send voice memos, not text messages. And she would send a message that was like, Jennifer, I just was thinking about that scene where blah, blah, blah. I don't understand. Never mind. We're making art. You know, then she would just hang up, you know, like, you know, and I always had an answer for her, but then she would also just decide that we were making art and that it was fine, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that she didn't have to find the logic of it. But I agree that monologue of hers where she talks about forevering, she nailed that. And I think she really, she believed it, you know, when she's saying like, we're the women feeling all the feelings and it's like possession in reverse or whatever. I I worked a Mm -hmm. long time on that monologue. 
I'm actually cut parts out because it was getting long. I mean, I stood by the whole thing, but at some point, you know, you have to listen to your producers if you want to make more films. But she felt it, you know, she understood it. She felt it and she owned that role. And I think that she really loved being kind of like styled into a character that doesn't look like her, you know, that she was able to be a character, a really interesting, curious character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's driving me nuts. I can't remember what she says in that monologue. The one line she really lays into kind of breathes out. Mm hmm. I mean, the film struck me with its stylized nature right off the bat. But once mm. once it got to that point and you kind of get a inside look into what's actually going on and you realize, you know, she's this powerful woman. It's yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, speaking of which, you did an interview with Christy and I hope I'm not butchering her name. Puchko of, uh-huh, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. of Mashable.com where you. You mentioned that Alicia Silverstone loved the movie because mm. of a scene that actually didn't make the final cut. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Sure. And the funny thing is it was a scene that she wasn't even in. She mm. was not even, Lisa wasn't even in the scene. It's a scene that took place in the script before Johnny gets to Hildy's house. Mm. And it was a scene kind of right at the beginning where Johnny's breaking into the house, stealing stuff from the big house. Mm-hmm. And she hears the family coming home and Johnny like stashes herself under the bed in the master bedroom and like an older man and a younger woman come, you know, kind of traipsing into the, to the bedroom. They're both a little tipsy and the older man is being like kind of rude to the younger woman. She's sort of like bouncy and, and being kind of like cute and tipsy and he's being a little like, you know, don't be stupid and wear your underwear and, you know, just being a little, you know, just kind of just dismissive of her. Mm. And so then the couple starts having sex on the floor of the master bedroom and where the woman and Johnny, who's under the bed, are face to face at some point. Mm. And they both ask each other, like kind of mouthing it, like, are you okay? Are you okay? And they don't know each other. But there's a moment where like these two young women, one who's like obviously hiding under the bed for we don't know why, mm-hmm. but the audience knows why she's stealing from the house, yeah. you know, because she needs some things. And then this other young woman is like having sex with an older guy who is not really good to her, probably for another reason, you know, that's mm-hmm. not about how she loves him. And they both kind of check in on each other. And in that moment, for me, it was like a scene where you understand that this film is going to be about like girls saving each other, even if they don't know each other. And that girls from the outside can look like they're doing very stupid things, very reckless things, when in fact, they're kind of trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And it got cut out. The scene totally worked. And I stand by that scene. And I've since recycled that scene into another script. But In terms of pacing, we screened the film to a test audience who just wanted to get Johnny to Hildy's house faster. Uh You know, they were like, oh, God, once she gets to Hildy's house, that's, you know, great. There was like a lot of stuff happening to Johnny in the beginning of the film before she got to Hildy's. I wanted to show her life as being really chaotic, more chaotic than it is in the final cut. Mm. But for some audience, it it was like too chaotic. They were just like, there's too many people that we don't ever see again. And Mm. we want to get her to Johnny's house. But the scene where two total strangers 
connected to make sure they were okay. You know, I don't know that everyone would have identified with that, but I think that, you know, Alicia just as someone who kind of had to become an adult very early because she was young when she started acting, just appreciated this idea that there's a kind of survival strategy among female friendships. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I'll do it. And then she was like, where'd that scene go? And I was like, you weren't (laughs) even in it. What doesn't, you know, like, why are you so sad that it's gone? You know, you weren't even in that scene. And she's like, I loved that scene. Was it because that scene communicated too much of what the movie was about early on? Like, boom, we have empathy. It's like a a giveaway. And then it goes back into her chaotic life. And then her meetup with Hildy when she finds out what's really going on. Was it? No, it was so much more nuts and bolts. It was about pacing, you Mm -hmm. know, like just test audiences were like, I want to get back to her dad. We need to know a little bit more about her dad and let's get her to Hildy's house. You know, and some of those conversations with test audiences and producers can be tough, right? Because I wanted to say like, yeah, but it's good to kind of have this foreshadowing of empathy or, and, you know, when you're looking at a cut that's like almost two hours and you know you have to cut some stuff out. Yeah. And test audiences are like, let's just get her to Hildy's. I'm like, oh, fine. We'll, We'll cut that scene. Let's get her to Hildy's. You know, and you just have to let it go. So it was much more about pacing than it was about content. It's got to be hard to kill your darlings. (laughs) Oh, my God. But I do it all the time. (laughs) Well, there are some recurring, I guess I would call them memes in the movie. And Mm -hmm. you kind of explained the theme of blood. But the two Mm -hmm. things I noticed that were kind of repeated was it can always get worse. Mm -hmm. And then the second was people having nosebleeds. Mm-hmm. So would commenting on that cause a spoiler? No, 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 no. I mean, I think on the one hand, again, I feel like nosebleeds are, you know, I feel like that's also the body's way of saying like something's not right. Mm. And, you know, something is not right. And I like that idea of like the body speaking to you. And I think a nosebleed is something that someone else can see that you might not be able to see, you know, mm. so sort of like standing and talking to somebody and then all of a sudden their nose starts bleeding. It's like their body is sending a message that they don't even know what's being sent, which is freaky. And at the same time, it's not, it's science, you know, Mm. noses bleed for all sorts of reasons that are based in your body, Mm. not miracles. (laughs) (laughs) And that sense of like, it can always get worse, or it's worse than it looks is that kind of, you know, as a writer, I like to play with language in a way that's tricky, you know, so of course, like the phrase is like, it's not as bad as it looks, you know, like something's happened, but like, oh, it's, it's not as bad as it looks. But I like the idea of like something looking very bad. And then you're like, oh, it's actually way worse than mm. what you're seeing, you know, mm. and then letting an audience think like, oh, my God, what's worse than that? You know, because, <laughs> you know, I think I like to write characters who are really kind of spiraling downward. And, you know, the idea that when you think a character has hit rock bottom, And you're like, oh, no, 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 this isn't rock bottom. You know, Mm. it's going to get worse. I mean, I also like to watch films like that. So I don't like rock bottom in my real life. You know, (laughs) I feel like I'm a kind of a lover, not a fighter. And Mm. I'm a pretty enthusiastic person who doesn't dwell in kind of real life darkness. It doesn't suit me well as a creative person. Yes, I align with the witches, but the witches who use their spells for good. So I like kind of flipping phrases and flipping language and letting an audience imagine, you know, God, what could be worse than what we're seeing right now? For me, sort of like one moment in a film 
usually gives me the idea for the next film and the next film and the next film. So all of my films really are totally related in some weird gothic kind of family tree. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it's like, there's sometimes reoccurring names, there's reoccurring lines of dialogue. There's these things that reoccur that are always completely intentional. You know, I'm aware of all of them. None of them are a mistake, but they link the films together and this kind of like wicked web. <laughs> the wicked web. Mm-hmm. Well, all the way around, just amazing movie. Me and my fiance enjoyed it immensely. Yay! That's great to know. <laughs> And we also checked out your film Night's End. Mm-hmm. And Night's End is about a recently divorced father named Ken who moves into an apartment by himself. He's trying to carve out a niche in the online streaming community. He eventually finds his niche as a ghost hunter when paranormal events start occurring in his own apartment. However, when he seeks the assistance of an eccentric group to investigate deeper, things take a horrifying turn. (laughs) And in the movie, there's mention of Ken having a nervous breakdown. This is kind of like Mm -hmm. a pre thing that you don't really get to witness or hear much more about, which subsequently leads him to drink to excess and results in the loss of his job and his family. So Mm -hmm. what was it that caused his nervous breakdown? Is there a, a backstory to that? Yeah, you know, The Night's End is an interesting project because that was one that I didn't write Mm. that came to me from the playwright Brett Neveu, who is also, he's a playwright here in Chicago. He sent that to me in 2020, you know, and I was like, oh, this is like, we could shoot this over a couple of weekends with our friends. Like we were all so antsy to make anything in 2020, Mm. but I liked the kind of twist of it. I liked the idea of taking on a story where there was like, an adult man as the protagonist, which I've never done before, you know, but I thought I'm going to give him a softness and give him some empathy. Mm. That goes back to that one. (laughs) And maybe have more kind of like broad comedy than just like dark kind of deadpan comedy. So Brett and I talked a little bit about Ken's backstory and, and also with Gino Walker, who plays Ken. And, and we really had this idea that you know, Ken's character has probably been dealing with kind of anxiety and depression and maybe like some specific sort of like social phobias for a while. And that even though we didn't mention a global pandemic, that some of that could have led to, you know, a bigger kind of emotional breakdown potentially. And and none of those things that I just mentioned should be played for comedy because they're very serious. And yet we wanted to make a scary movie where the conundrum is that you are afraid to go out of your house, but your house is haunted. Like you can't stay and you can't go like that, Mm. you know, that sort of conundrum and, and also sort of deal with like a kind of gaslighting, you know, where his friends are a little like, I don't think it's happening or... I don't think you're really crazy or maybe you really are crazy. It's not really happening. You know, his friends who he only sees through a kind of mediation, you know, through Mm -hmm. a kind of video conferencing, which of course it can still be really hard to decipher real human tone sometimes Mm -hmm. or real human emotion through something like that. And we were all experiencing that. We shot 
night's end in the summer of 2021, you know, when we were all still just so mediated and kind of so sick of these little boxes. So I think his like backstory was that he's always kind of dealt with depression, social anxiety, and that it had come to a head. And that for me, it was also thinking about, I don't know, like depression, anxiety, just general sort of mental health among people of color and especially among men. And it's not unrelated to perpetrator in the sense that, you know, women are often criticized for being like overly emotional. And yet, you know, I think that men are still expected to not be emotional, you know? Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, again, I mean, I have three sons and the idea that they would go into the world and not be able to cry in public. I don't know, like we do such a good job at disrupting human evolution, you know, whenever we can. And I think when you compile other aspects like race and socioeconomics, I wanted to cast Ken as someone who in stature is big. I mean, Gina Walker is probably six, four, Mm. you know, he takes up the whole doorway. He has very Mm. dark skin. And so I wanted to portray this man who in a different circumstance would be seen as like a predator, you know, as someone to be afraid. I mean, we live in a culture where if you are a large adult black man, you're a threat, you know? Mm. I mean, that's just where we live right now. You're in Houston, I'm in Chicago. Like we deal with that on a daily basis, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, not you and I personally, but like, you know, stories like that. And so I wanted to also just, you know, present that physical character as someone who also is like extraordinarily vulnerable and hurting. Mm-hmm. And Gino's an incredible theater actor here in Chicago and really understood all that. And I wanted to be able to spend some time in his, you know, kind of private space with him and his orchids and you know just watch this kind of soft vulnerable guy Mm. be kind of goaded by his friends like yeah come on like do a exorcism that'll be fun you know and then it all kind of goes very badly you know Uh he gets completely taken advantage of i feel really proud of that film and i feel proud that we actually made that film i know that that's one that like i just don't even necessarily go on to Rotten Tomatoes or Letterboxd to see the reviews because there's lots of people who are kind of like, it's garbage, which that's totally fine. But I really, <laughs> I really loved making Night's End and I stand by it. And it was a departure for me in the sense that I directed a script that I hadn't written. But I don't know, I totally stand by it. It was super fun to work with all of those people. I feel so glad that we got to make a film in 2021 when it was still under very, very strict COVID compliances. I mean, even though we only shot over 13 days, all the actors were shot entirely individually. So none of those actors were acting with another person. They were acting against the script supervisor because we shot in one location. So we would like shoot in the orchid room and then the orchid room got you know dismantled and that became hair and makeup while we were shooting in the kitchen. And then when we were shooting in the kitchen, hair and makeup moved into the bedroom. Like we shot in one apartment. We had one room, the living room, which would be the swap out for everybody else's background. Mm -hmm. You know, so Michael Shannon and his actual wife, Kate Arrington, and then Dark Corners and, you know, Leiden, everybody and the 
Colin Albertson character, you know, like they all got shot in blocks, like two days or one day and a half. And then their whole background got taken away. And, you know, we would put up the other background. So it was like a crazy task, you know, to make that film. And then it all got edited together. Like, Mm. yeah. So nobody got shot. Nobody was actually in a scene with the other person they were actually acting against. That's awesome. Yeah. One of my questions was going to be how you thought the rise of live streaming platforms and their influence on pop culture have reshaped or added new dimensions to horror narratives. Because, Mm -hmm. like, I love movies that are shot very contained, like the movie takes place in that apartment, but without going anywhere, there's these separate worlds because he's talking to his ex-wife. They're in one location, but it's over the computer. And then he's talking to his friend. He's in a total separate location, but it's over the computer. And then the live stream for, what was it? Dark Corners, I think. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Dark and then he's got mm-hmm. people connected. It's this weird dynamic. How do you feel like that's kind of changed the landscape of horror narratives? God, that's a really good question. I mean, one of the films I know that had really inspired Brett to write this was Host, which I think is so fantastic, which is all a kind of like a seance that happens over like a video conferencing. And that Mm -hmm. whole thing goes completely awry. And it's absolutely terrifying. I mean, I, I say that about very few films because I'm not somebody who likes to seek out jump scares. Mm. But that's a film that you should watch during the daytime, you know, potentially. Like, it's so terrifying. And that was done kind of in the same way. Like, I understand they all shot in their own locations because that was even more like the beginning of COVID. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's room to explore it more. You know, there's room to add in just like the weird disruptions that happen even in a kind of like, video communication, video conferencing that feel like they're sort of genre-esque or there's ways to think about those moments of missed tonality or there's certainly ways to continue to nuance stories like this that are, when I am say like this, I mean even just like the way that you and I are talking right now, that that's become a mm-hmm. real normal thing that I'm in this location with all of this stuff in the background, downtown Chicago in the background, and you're in your location. Mm -hmm. And there's ways to continue to write stories that sort of deal with these gigantic universes that exist on the screen, especially because at the end of the day, so much of these stories will end up on another little flat screen, you Mm -hmm. know? And I think that we always knew, for instance, with Night's End, that we never were thinking about it as having a festival life We were never thinking about it having a theatrical life because we knew we were still in the middle of a global pandemic. We were like, it's going to land on Shutter, thank God, because Shutter financed Night's End as well. And so we always imagined that somebody was going to watch it either on their phone or on the computer screen. And the meta-ness of that just felt really productive. I mean, I don't know that I would make that film again right now. Mm. Only saying that because I think that when the energy around making that film in particular in 2021, which of course, like I still want it to feel relevant. I don't want it to feel like in 2025 or right even now, you know, no one cares about that film anymore because we don't video conference anymore. This is never going to go away. And with streaming platforms, this is never going to go away the way that we experience films. I mean, my oldest son 
even me as his filmmaker mom, he only watches films on his phone. You know, it's like mm. the smallest screen in the house. I'm always <laughs> like, oh my God, you know, like I'm a filmmaker. You should go to the theater. And he's like, nah, this is fine. Uh, you know? So, I mean, that was sort of maybe a long windy answer. And also I would say like one last thing, like, whereas in a lot of my other films, I've really tried to make it feel a little bit timeless. Like I don't necessarily want to have characters like texting all the time or checking Instagram, you know, like I don't want to bring in that much of like the real world interface with social media or like our mobile gadgets. But with that one, I was like, yeah, let's lean way into it. Let's talk about <laughs> video conferencing. Let's talk about how we communicate with each other remotely uh -huh. and think about how this can get folded into a really scary movie where other people in very far locations are watching something horrible happen to other people. You know, that's terrifying. You know, like the idea that you would watch somebody be slaughtered over a video conferencing and you have no, there's absolutely no way you can help at all. You just have to witness it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as you mentioned already, Gino Walker, who played Ken Barber, command performance, as well as Lawrence Grimm, who played Colin Albertson, loved mm -hmm. his character. But the haunted apartment kind of becomes a character in its own right. Can you mm -hmm. uh, discuss the design and aesthetic choices you made to bring this environment to life? Sure. I mean, part of it was we were shooting in that same one location, you mm -hmm. know, so I was like, we cannot jam it full of furniture because we're going to have to keep moving everything around. Mm -hmm. So let's make it look like he's just moved in and like he's renovating because then we can hang a bunch of plastic to hide, you know, hair and makeup that's mm -hmm. happening in the kitchen. But okay. also we knew that the plastic could be a great way to like pass silhouettes. Somebody. Yes, yeah. yes, totally. That it would be terrifying to have a space that is active with spirits that we as the audience can see, but Ken can't see mm -hmm. and to make it also mysterious. You know, I like, you know, when I was talking to the production designer and, and my DP, I was like, I don't ever want to like pull really far back so that you understand where the orchid room is in proximity to the living room, to the bathroom you know, so the house itself is a little bit of a puzzle or the apartment, even though it's clearly not gigantic. He's not like going up and down steps. It's not a mansion. Mm -hmm. There's no basement or whatever, but that the layout of the house is a puzzle. And I wanted for the, the first shot, we go into the apartment and then we stay in the apartment the entire time until Ken walks out of the apartment at the end, you know? So that was also very intentional. You know, yeah. you never go outside again. You never see the apartment from the outside. You see it at the beginning, mm -hmm. the first shot, and then you see it at the final shot. But the whole rest of the time we are in that apartment and it's dark because he's, you know, a kind of a recluse. He's got paper on the windows, mm -hmm. you know, maybe because he's just moved in, he doesn't have shades yet. So he's put paper up, but also maybe he's a little bit of a shut-in, you know? Yeah. And I think we've all had neighbors where you're sort of just like, they never open the curtains, you know, like what's <laughs> I think up me with and my that? fiance are those people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's sometimes it's cause it's 
hot outside and it's like you can keep the house cooler if you keep the shades closed or sometimes you don't want the nosy neighbors or sometimes you're really kind of afraid of what's outside or for whatever mm. reason. And But that was also even a way, for instance, like covering all the windows was a way for us to hide like the entire backyard of that apartment was craft services and wardrobe. I mean, it was such a contained <laughs> environment yeah. that you could not move the camera an inch one way or the other. You would see everything, you know? <laughs> and one of the producers on that film, Neil Edelstein, who I love so much, who is based here in Chicago, was one of the producers on the American iteration of The Ring oh. and of David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Like, he's such a amazing, iconic sort of genre producer. And he loved it. You know, he's been on huge sets and he was still yeah. just like, it's amazing. You know, like, yeah. it's just us, you know, it's just <laughs> like, it's just us. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Like one of the days we were shooting, you'll have to ask your dad about this. You know, there was like an incredible Italian ice place down the street. We shot in um, July in the mm. summer of 2021. And, um, this amazing Italian ice, Chicago's, I mean, you know, other cities also have great Italian ice, but, you know, Chicago's got some great Italian ice, which is like a shaved ice, yummy lemon and, you know, mm -hmm. peach flavors and stuff. So the sound guy had called in during lunch for an order of Italian ice to be delivered at the end of the day, you know, for one of the days. And so it was just mm -hmm. like this little tiny cast and crew, like devouring Italian ice. Or one of the other days we had to go late, somebody else had ordered a bunch of, you know, like, hot dogs from like the Chicago hot dog place around the corner, you know? Oh, so God. at the end of the day, it was like, really, we made a film that in spite of it's like squashed review on, you know, Rotten Tomatoes was, I think a film that looks way bigger than what it really was. And at the end of the day, it was like a tiny crew, a tiny cast, like Tetrising the entire production, trying to make a psychologically scary film about a guy who's got shut-in tendencies, whose apartment is haunted, and try and make some scary moves and try to also make some funny moves. I mean, you brought up Larry's performance, which I think is great. And he co-founded the Red Orchid Theater with Michael Shannon. Mm -hmm. So they were together. I mean, a film with Michael Shannon, I mean, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, let's not even like mention the Michael Shannon of it, who's funny, who's like the comic relief of this film. I don't know any other film that Michael Shannon has done where you could say like he's the comic relief of a film. And Thelonious Monk, who plays Gino's friend, you know, Ken's friend, Terry, who, mm -hmm. I, who I think is so funny, whose stand-up is so funny. You know, if you look at Thelonious's work under YouTube or whatever, he's such a funny guy. And Daniel Kyrie, who plays Dark Corners, is on Chicago Fire. Theo Germain, who plays Leiden, was in the Blumhouse film last year called They Slash Them. Mm. I mean, like, because I think people only had to work for like one day or a half a day in the summer when they had time off, I managed to put together what I think is probably one of the most incredible ensemble casts, you know, mm. for a film like yeah. this. Uh huh. So I stand by. I stand by Night's End. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Listeners at home, do not listen to Rotten Tomatoes. It's an amazing film. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned uh, Comic Relief. I was reading mm -hmm. about Gino Walker, that he had done comedy improv at Second City and The Groundlings, mm -hmm. which I think is where SNL exclusively gets people from. Is he yeah. a bit of a comedian himself? Or? Oh, super. Yeah, super funny. I haven't seen his own kind of like stand up, but I mean, that's why I love shooting films in Chicago. We shot Perpetrator here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Night's End was in Chicago. Knives and Skin was in Chicago. 
And another feature film I did, Signature Move, was in Chicago. And I mean, I love making films in the city where I can sleep in my own bed at night, for sure. But in terms of the actors, I love casting comedy actors in dramatic roles. Or even like I was talking about Audrey Francis as Marcy in Perpetrator, I also love casting dramatic actors in kind of absurd roles. Mm. Uh, But I find that casting people from the improv comedy community here in Chicago into dramatic roles is, oh my God, it's extraordinary. I mean, you know, if you look at something like the dramatic roles that like Robin Williams did or the dramatic roles that like Jim Carrey has done, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. or the dramatic roles that Kristen Wiig has done or something. I mean, people who have access to that kind of comedy, especially if you're working in a live Groundlings or Second City or Improv Olympics or Annoyance here in Chicago, and then you move that onto SNL where you're performing in front of a live audience where you have to read the room. And if mm. people are not responding, you have to flip it immediately. I mean, I would hate to be involved romantically with an improv comedy person because they can just like they can flip it immediately yeah. like instantly but that's terrifying you, know? <laughs> you never know what's real mm-hmm. and yet i find that the ability to just access that kind of like flipping if you channel that into a dramatic role i mean it's like there's nothing like it so mm-hmm. yeah i love finding very very funny people especially who have improv experience and just driving them into the skin of a very dramatic role Mm. where they have to be properly terrified. And, you know, definitely, you know, Gino had to do that, but he's also super funny and super lovely to work with and genuinely a plant guy. You know, I was like, great, we're going to give you an orchid room. He's like, oh, great. Like I have a ton of plants (laughs) in my house. It's fine. It was funny how much he sort of is Ken and he has a great, I don't know that it's, still going, but he was also on a great HBO show called Southside that's got a kind of a parks and recreation, kind of the office sort of irreverence, but it's about a Black community on the South Side of Chicago. It's really, it's so funny. I mean, in a very different way than like Atlanta, you know, just Mm -hmm. thinking about kind of like, like contemporary smart Black comedy. But if anyone can find like old episodes of Southside from HBO, Gino's in that and he's hilarious. Awesome. Well, so in an Instagram post, you pay your respects to the late, and I hope I'm not butchering her name, Berenice Renaud. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a social media post, you shared, quote, with one bit of sharp advice she gave me in grad school, she transformed my entire approach to storytelling. I would mm-hmm. not be the filmmaker I am today without her, unquote. Mm-hmm. So could you share a little about who she was and the influence she had on you? And if it's not too personal, the advice you Mm -hmm. were talking about that she imparted to you? For sure. Oh, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Yeah, Berenice Renault passed away recently, just last week. She was an incredible French film scholar, film programmer. She had been teaching for a long, long time out at CalArts in California. I mean, she was... French, but her specialty oftentimes was in like Chinese cinema. And she was a huge champion, like a huge supporter of 
filmmakers and women in film. And so when I was in grad school here in Chicago at the School of the Art Institute, she had come to visit as a kind of, she gave a lecture and then, you know, she was visiting grad students and looking at films. And I showed her a draft of the film that I was working on for my graduate thesis project called White Trash Girl, which is still, if you go to my Vimeo page, it's free on Vimeo. People still love White Trash Girl. It was like a live action comic book based on a a girl superhero who had toxic bodily fluids. Not unlike Johnny and Perpetrator. I do feel like it's kind of, (laughs) we've kind of come all the way around. Uh And there's a scene in White Trash Girl where there's like a couple having sex and the narration, which I did, is also saying like they had sex or something. And I was... I was narrating, there's a voiceover in White Trash Girl because I was working with my friends who are non-actors. And so I remember a friend of mine had said to me, well, you know, a way to get around dialogue if you're working with non-actors is like you do a narration and then you just like have your actors kind of act it out. And then you can work with non-actors. You just tell them what to physically do and they don't have to say dialogue convincingly. So that's what I had done. And then Berenice had said to me, she watched the film and she said, you know, you should have more confidence in your ability to communicate just through your images. You're a very good image maker. You know, have more confidence in your ability to communicate through your visual images. And then she said, and she had said that in a very French accent, but then she said in her French accent again, she said, you don't have to tell me they're fucking. I can see they're fucking. <laughs> I hope I can say that. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That out. But I was like, oh, my God. Of course. And I think about that all the time. And mm-hmm. I had I had seen Berenice many, many times after that. You know, I, I was invited back to CalArts a bunch of times to screen films. And I would always embarrass her by saying, you know, like, you don't have to tell me they're fucking. I can see they're fucking. <laughs> you know, and she was like, I don't remember saying that. And I was like, you did. And I would hear that voice when I would be writing. And I think I was writing something that was like too expository, too explaining, you know? Mm. I mean, look, I didn't go to film school. I went to art school. I mean, I made films in art school. I was an art undergrad at Ohio State. And then I went to the School of the Art Institute for graduate school. And I mean, I never like did paintings or sculpture or drawing. I mean, I made films, but they were in an art school context, which Mm. should explain a lot. (laughs) I taught myself how to write scripts. I taught myself how to direct actors. But I'm a visual storyteller. That was something that you brought up right at the very beginning of this conversation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Berenice in that moment in grad school was sort of saying to me, like, you are a good visual storyteller. You know, like, if you build it, they will come kind of (laughs) of thing, you know, like, Uh, or the right people will come. And like, I get it. Like, I don't make films for everybody. And that's completely fine. I love my super fans so much. And, you know, the people who are the... And to this is of the super fans, that's fine. They can go be fans of something else. I want to make particular moves in my films and I want to lean into what I think is my strength, which is this kind of visual storytelling. And yeah, I mean, Bernice gave me permission, you know, to do that and Mm -hmm. to be confident in my ability to communicate through my visuals. And she did. That was, you know, 20 years ago. And I have never not listened to her voice in my head when I have been doubting, you know, Mm. if I should explain more through the dialogue or explain more through some other kind of way, you know, that I should just 
lean into it because the smart ones, the smart ones will figure it out. Mm, Beautiful. Well, what is the life of Jennifer Reeder like outside of filmmaking? Oh, gosh. I mean, no one would believe it. Honestly, no one would believe it. I am occasionally a university professor. So like mm-hmm. I said, you're finding me here today in my office at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where I am teaching this semester uh, screenwriting. Mm-hmm. I love being an educator and a mentor to young filmmakers. UIC is a public land-grant university. We have a beautifully diverse group of students, you know, over 50% of the students at UIC come from Spanish-speaking families. We have lots of amazing first-generation college students, meaning that they're the first in their family to come to college. I mean, I feel Mm. like I am, I don't know, like it feels really right to sort of give back. It's a different kind of empathy, you know, Mm. but I feel, I mean, I love being an educator and a mentor. And I pivot sharply back to being the mom of three young sons. I make so many films about young women. And the (laughs) wacky part is that I have three very boy presenting boys. (laughs) So much so that I have like high school football players. I have a middle school football player. Mm -hmm. I kind of pivot back to literally football mom. It's um, homecoming week this week. So the homecoming Mm -hmm. game is on Friday, the homecoming dance is Saturday. Tomorrow, I will make 50 sub sandwiches for the Thursday night team dinner. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's not like I love making 50 sub sandwiches, so to say, or I am the first person to say, like, I have no idea what's happening in the football games that I go to. I'm mm-hmm. really the one who's like, I think we just scored. I feel like I, <laughs> that was just happening. Yeah. But, you know, I love my life as a mom. And even though I sometimes I like to write, mom characters who are really disconnected to their life, you know, as mothers. And I really understand that so many moms or so many women feel very ambivalent about parenting. Dads too. You know, I always knew that I wanted to be a mom. So I feel like in spite of how weird I get as a filmmaker, I want to pivot back and be super, super present for my children. And they appreciate it. And I don't do that going back to something that we talked about for Perpetrator. I don't do that to feel youthful, you know, like I don't show up at games and try to be part of the team, you know, like I fully know that I am a parent, that I'm invisible to those kids, but that, you know, at the end of the night that my sons knew that I showed up and I know that that matters to them. So when my oldest son first said that he wanted to play football, I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) I was like, okay, I will come to your games and I'm going to sit like a Lydia Dietz under a black parasol, <laughs> like with a veil and just and like, or something, <laughs> you know? And he was just like, oh, uh, my God, I don't, I don't care, whatever. Just come <laughs> to the games, you know? Like they're used to me now, you know? And the other football parents, like they, they know that I just made a film with Alicia Silverstone. That's very impressive to them, you uh-huh. know, but they're also kind of like, but just make sure that, you know, the meatball subs you're making for the team dinner are nice and hot when they arrive or whatever. So I actually really appreciate kind of going from my life as a filmmaker where I get to tell these like wild, bloody, weird stories and get to go to film festivals and be on red carpets and hang out with Alicia Silverstone to then pivot back to be a super engaged mom of, I'm going to say sporty boys because 
that's what my British friends have said. They call my boys sporty, not jocks, because I think the jocks, <laughs> you know, it makes it sound like they're jerks and they're not. They're great. They're super yeah. great. And they actually do not care at all about my filmmaking. You know, mm. when I'm like, hey, you guys, like I made a new film. It's on Shutter, And they're like, OK, fine. But did you pack my lunch? You know, <laughs> it's, so it's all good. So, yeah, my life, you know, when I pivot away from my filmmaking is kind of the opposite of the characters I write. But I'm glad that the writer's strike is over because I've got two new scripts. This summer, I wrote two new scripts simultaneously. One's a kind of a gnarly action film mm. and one's a kind of a more nuanced kind of monster slasher film. So nice. watch out. I'm like, the next one's coming right up, Vince. Bring it. <laughs> All right. Well, Jennifer, it has been a pleasure talking with you. You as well. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your viewers know about? I mean, you just kind of told us about some uh, big things coming, but uh, anything you'd like to reiterate? No, I mean, I just would love for people to go on Shutter, check out Perpetrator, check out Night's End. Knives and Skin is still on Hulu and Signature Move is on Amazon. And there's a bunch of my shorts on the Criterion channel. So there's like 10 of my mm. short films on the Criterion channel. So if anyone's curious and they want to go down a Jennifer rabbit hole, which is super enjoyable, very bloody. <laughs> yeah. Park yourself on Shutter, skip over to Hulu, Amazon, and maybe, you know, end your night with a bunch of short films on the Criterion channel. Nice. All right. Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Jennifer, thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Vince. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer that examines the evil within through the lens of supernatural horror. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. You're my best